Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. In the community, you know, I was exposed to it from a very young age. Um, and I, it's really heartbreaking, you know, to see that these are my cousins, these are people that are in my life that have gone through this. One of the things that really speaks to me about this is the role that art has in activism. When I started learning about it in college, um, because, you know, we asked for it, I then realized, you know, wow, there are so many, um, again, institutions that aren't doing enough. Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, the podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective. We're committed to helping to eradicate what's still a huge problem that affects every one of us. Around 50 million people are enslaved across the world, across all sorts of demographics, locations and societies. But it's a problem we can solve together. That's what we're committed to doing at The Collective, raising awareness and bringing like-minded people together who are as passionate about tackling this crisis as we are. Thank you so much for listening in. On today's episode, we're joined by Amanda Noyan. She's a civil rights activist and founder of RISE, which is an organization aiming to protect the civil rights of sexual assault survivors. She was also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, was one of Time Magazine's Women of the Year in 2022, and interned at NASA. Quite the CV. We sat down with Amanda to talk about her activism work and how a horrifying experience in her own life became a driving force in her work to protect survivors of sexual assault. She is one inspiring lady and we're so excited to have her on the podcast. So Amanda, it's been like five years since I've seen you and it is so good to see you again. Yeah, it's so great to see you. The last time we were in person, I was talking to you about a UN resolution for sexual violence survivors. Yeah, so we met in New York six years ago, and you, you live in... Do you live in Washington? Yeah, I do. Washington, D.C. Yes. And you've been, like, an, you've been advocating basically forever, haven't you, on, on all things about women's rights and survivors' rights and, and, and you know, all about sexual violence, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, my background is actually in astrophysics, which is very different from what I do day to day. I'm an activist now. Um, but yeah, I unfortunately, like so many people, so many women um, experienced sexual violence. Um, it was during my last semester at Harvard. And I remember going to the hospital, um, getting a rape kit procedure, which is the forensic evidence collection. Um, process and you know mine was six hours long most people don't know it's three to seven hours long um, and realizing how broken the criminal justice system is for uh, rape survivors so 
decided to do something about it. I wrote a law, President Obama signed it, um, and long story short, the world reached out. Um, over a million people actually responded to that bill signing and said, hey, like, you know, I'm either working on something like this um, or I want to. Um, Grace Forrest actually is one of the folks who um, said, hey, I want to be an ally, I want to help. So we've been working together, um, yeah, all the way up to this moment. What, what gave you um, the, the courage and confidence to talk about what happened to, to you? That was exactly the same as my question. Great minds. <laughs> mind sink, mind sink. Um, honestly, I was just so enraged. Like, that's the true answer, you know? I, I felt like there really wasn't um, any other choice but this one, which was to be um, you know, the change you want to see. I do, of course, credit it to the strong women in my life. I mean, my mom is a boat refugee from Vietnam, and she literally went into death to seek life. You know, she was caught in a tidal wave storm. Her boat was sinking, and she went through so much. She actually um, encountered pirates on her oh um, way to, to freedom. Um, and so I grew up never taking um, for granted the you know, right to petition the government, um, the right to be able to speak um, what is on my mind. Um, and I think the most patriotic thing that somebody can do is to try and make their community a better place. Uh, so yeah, decided to speak up. Amanda, tell us a bit about RISE and what inspired you to set up the organization and with its most genius name, I love the name RISE, and and how you got there from astrophysics to beginning modern slavery courses at Harvard and your journey is, is extraordinary. Um, well, thank you so much. I just raged, you know, and out of that rage came this. Um, no, I remember talking to one of my astronaut mentors at NASA because my dream was and still is um, to go to space, to become an astronaut. His name is Leland Melvin, and I went to him. I said, "Hey, Leland, you know, I want to go through astronaut candidacy, but I also this happened to me, and I want to fight for my rights." And Leland told me um, something that was private then and is now public. Um, and he said, "I am also a rape survivor. I was, um, you know, assaulted when I was a child." And um, he told me that he would support me, and he said, "Space is going to be there." It's going to be there long after you're gone. Um, so uh, whenever you're ready, I'll, I'll be here. Um, but I support your civil rights journey. Um, and I'm so grateful for him. You know, there are these mentors in your life. My mom, my you know mentors, Leland. And um, without them, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, but Leland has been there all the way through. Yeah, he also was um, a professional football player in the NFL before he became an astronaut. So, you know, oh still God, the dreams, Leland. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, he has an extraordinary story. Did he get behind you in, in how you set it up? Because did you set it up as a charity or was it, is it a... Uh, yes, he's actually did. a board member. Okay. So RISE is now an organization that um, brings people together and, and, and raises awareness and the, lev and the vibrations basically around around trafficking and assault and things like that. Isn't yes, it? yes, that's right. So we started off um, on um, trafficking and, and sexual violence. Um, and then after we passed our first law, Congress um, voted on it unanimously. 
it was the 21st bill in modern use history to get a unanimous on the record vote. Um, and we're very proud wow. of that. Since yes, then, well done. Thank you. Um, since then, uh, we've passed over 50 laws <laughs> in the U.S. And wow. um, we actually started a new program to teach other people um, how to pass their own laws. And it's because the people who have the world's you know, solutions to the biggest problems are the people who live the problem every day. You know, And there's this huge gap between um, the resources and the knowledge. Tell us about your work with the Obama administration. Yeah, so um, I was the deputy White House liaison um, for the State Department, and I basically um, worked between the White House and the State Department. That was the like, I was a political appointee, a presidential appointee. Um, it was my dream to work uh, in the administration, um, but that was my first job. My first job was actually um, in the public engagement office at the White House, and then it was working for Bill Daley, the chief of staff, um, and then it was speech writing for um, the trafficking persons office. So I did actually write some speeches for President Obama on um, trafficking persons. Uh, and then, yeah, the deputy White House liaison position. Um, I got to meet a ton of different public servants from all over, um, really see how the State Department works from the like Secretary of State level. Um, and uh, you know, it was such an honor to be able to, to work with them. They were yeah. all very encouraging. What was it like to work with Obama? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, presidents have the world's weight on their shoulders. And it's such a, a humbling job. And for him to be the first um, to break the color barrier you know, in the United States, in a country that is still wrestling um, with this issue, uh, was tremendous. And there is certainly a, you just, when you went into the White House and you worked in this administration, there was a feeling of gravity of um, making sure that, you know, all your T's were crossed, all your I's were dotted, right? Because you knew that you were under a very scrutinous lens. Um, but people showed up, you know, obviously not for the money, um, but uh, more than just for the prestige of working in the White House. People really believed in him. When did, when did trafficking become part of your mission um, with, with what you do? Well, I actually started from um, working on human trafficking before RISE. So um, I guess a lot of people don't know this about me, but I was the president of the Harvard College chapter of Free the Slaves. Um, and uh, we worked on creating a, so I guess I was a baby activist. So when I was a freshman, um, we created a petition and I went around to a bunch of students um, and a bunch of professors and said, we want a course on um, modern day abolition. Wow. And basically petitioned Harvard to create this course. Um, and it worked over two years. We were able to do that. Um, the course actually, which is taught by a sociology professor at Harvard now, Orlando Patterson, is one of the like highest ranking like student-loved courses. Um, so yeah, that was our first, my first, um, you know, 
uh, view into the subject matter. And then I ended up working at the State Department for um, the Trafficking in Persons Office as a speechwriter. Um, but honestly, my like how I came to this work is because there's so much trafficking that happens in Vietnam. Right? I often heard of uh, mail order bribes, um, you know, uh, a lot of rumors about whether or not, um, you know, my cousin that came over to the United States was a mail order bride, or um, that people were um, doing these unethical things in order to, again, abuse young women who were desperate. So. In the community, you know, uh, I was exposed to it from uh, a very young age, um, and I it, it's really heartbreaking, you know, to see that these are my cousins, these are people that are in my life that have gone through this, and so, yeah, I wanted to learn more about that, right? Like, what would bring someone to be in such a vulnerable position, and more importantly, what institutions? Um, are around that enable that um yeah so it came from a personal place can you remember the very first time you your eyes were open to one slavery like you and i when we were 21 years old we visited a safe house in kolkata that looked after survivors of human trafficking and we always say from that exact moment onwards we just couldn't we couldn't unsee what we'd seen and and what was that what was that eye-opening moment or the first memory for you yeah, it definitely was my cousin because, yeah, I remember, you know, I was so young and um, so my mother uh, came to the United States and she had sponsored, you know, her family. She's one out of 12 siblings, the big family. She's number 10. Um, wow. Actually, in um, the Vietnamese culture, in rural communities, you don't actually call your siblings by their names. You call them by their number because there's so many. Really? Yes, and I didn't actually know that was strange until in high school, my aunt number six introduced herself like that in English to my friends. She was like, I'm number six. They were like, what? No way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is not auntie number six. My mom is auntie number 10. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I also realized that my dad said he's one out of seven. They don't call themselves by their numbers. So it's only in like, I think it's more common in rural communities. And the practice is because they have so many children and um, child mortality is so high that, um, you know, they call them by their numbers. But um, but yeah, so the, the point is that she came from a very big family and... Um, you know, I heard a rumor that, oh, you know, one way to get people over to the United States was through, you know, um, through sex trafficking. And I was, I was a child at that time, but I was like, wait, what? Um, and it was, um, you know, so horrific for me. Um, and my mother, you know, explained to me, you know, the, the crisis that was going on and the family and how... You know, that she was trying to figure it out and how they're trying to bring her in other ways. But the fact that it was even a possibility, you know, um, was so terrifying to me. And then when I started learning about it in college, um, because, you know, we asked for it, um, I then realized, you know, wow, there are so many, um, again, institutions that aren't doing enough. Of course. But it's isn't it interesting, though? you learning from it at such a young age, 
you know, that is, that's the sort of key really to get young people learning about it. I think that's something that, you know, everything at Rise and, and what we're trying to do is just teaching people that like, there are people out there who generally are just trying to do bad things and you have to be aware of it. And I think it's it's great that our collective voices can can try and change that for one person and hopefully pay it forward. We always say that, um, pay it forward if we can. Can I ask quickly about um, this, the anti-Asian hate um, yes. viral video that you did? Thank <laughs> you so much for bringing it up. Yeah. It's something that Jules and I watched um, and obviously, you know, we were looking at what was happening um, with the anti-Asian hate and it's just appalling what goes on and I think what again what you used your voice you used your power you used your influence you used your um, heart to set a standard uh, and, and raise the 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 profile of you know what's going on and actually we can't stand for this and just tell us like obviously you did that but how proud are you that what you did went viral and so many people reacted so well to it yeah, thank you so much for bringing it up. That means so much to me. And I, um, you know, it's so fascinating because when I talk to people, um, it's sometimes hard for people to figure out, well, like you do this, but you also do that, but you do this, you know? Um, and we're all multitudes. Stop Asian Hate for me was a moment that I could not have predicted. Um, you know, virality and movements are organic. And I, turn on my camera and I asked people to stop Asian hate because I had seen these horrific um, acts of violence happening um, and that the mainstream media wasn't covering them. So my call to action was for people to get CNN, MSNBC, these mainstream media outlets to report on our stories. And um, I actually thought that I would lose followers. I was just so mad. And I, I knew that I had 30 seconds, you know, the algorithm on social media only allows you to do that much. I needed to caption it and I needed to have a very succinct call to action, but I actually thought I would lose followers. But when I posted Why it, did you think that? Because when I, um, had talked about the violence before people were really uncomfortable about it because they were like, stay in your lane. You talk about sexual violence. Don't put, right. you know, race into this. And, you know, everything is intersectional. So I... But also you can stand up, you can stand up for any cause that you believe to be in Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I was just like, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> I'm gonna do this, even if I lose followers. And it, it went viral. 11 million people responded to it overnight. Um, and then um, the White House press corps asked the press secretary if President Biden had seen my video the next business day. And then President Biden responded to it. And CNN apologized to me on air um, for not covering it. And it just went poof. Um, we actually chose the hashtag. So when my video went viral, um, I pulled together some Asian um, thought leaders in different fields, and we were thinking, okay, well, you know, what's that one hashtag, right? This is the how can we make this um, moment turn into a movement? And um, it wasn't a unanimous vote, but it became stop Asian hate, and. Um, 
yeah, and now it's history. I also am super grateful to Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, because I looked to her in this moment for mentorship and help, and she saved me from so much heartache. Uh, I'm so grateful to her, to the Black Lives Matter movement, and to all the activists um, who have paved the pathway for us to be able to have this conversation now about this issue. One of the things I, I'm so interested to ask you about is this film that you've done. Um, everything I ever wanted to tell my daughter about men. Um, because that just, me and Jules were watching the trailer and it was nominated at Cannes, or did it win at Cannes, sorry? It did win. It won, <laughs> it won. I mean, so they're just, the sky's the limit for what you can do. It's pretty incredible. And I just think um, it's, it's I, haven't got a, I haven't got a daughter, but I've got a son and I think I'd, I want to tell him you know, what he, what he, you know, world that he wants to live in and, and to be a part of. So t- tell us a bit about your film and the process of it. Absolutely. Um, well, the film uh, and my involvement with it came about when a survivor reached out to me and said, you know, I want to, um, I'm writing a screenplay on how sexual violence has impacted my life. And she wanted to have people who were able to um, tell the story, raise awareness about the rights we're fighting for, but through the arts. And I couldn't agree more. And so the story tracks um, her relationships throughout her life. It is based off of her life. Um, And it, you know, I'm trying to not have spoilers here, but it basically shows um, the growth, the healing process, but also how Um, long-lasting trauma can be um, in all of its different variations. Um, And it's really this beautiful collaboration between so many um, different activists and artists. I think one of the things that really speaks to me about this is the role that art has in activism. Um, The UN during the pandemic um, has had really uh, strict restrictions on the public coming in. And, you know, we understand that, uh, but also how are you supposed to, even for NGOs that have like badges and stuff, but how are you supposed to advocate for your rights when you're literally locked out of the building? Um, So we thought, okay, well, if we can't actually physically be in the building, um, maybe our stories can still live on. And so what we did was we took the outfits that we were raped in um, and we put them on mannequins, 103 of them in the lobby from survivors all around the world. Um, And the exhibit was called, uh, What Were You Wearing? Um, So these diplomats would literally run into these outfits and they would just look like regular outfits. Um, But uh, upon learning about them, understand the power that's behind them. And it really worked. I love what you say about art being um, such a key thing in getting messages across and also healing. You know, Jules and I are taking part at the moment in an Art is Freedom uh, exhibition with a, another charity called Hestia in, in, um, for Anti-Slavery Day. And it's the, the survivors that have taken the time to do the artwork and display it, but actually have the courage to display it and make it like, you know, something for the world to see is 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 huge it's like you coming forward with your story it's like putting yourself on the line you know after you've gone through something it's kind of I wouldn't put my art on the line if you know any day so it's 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 a really incredible um thought-provoking but also moment of courage to 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 stand up 
Yeah, and and the Im- and the impact is twofold. It's it's therapeutic for them. There's this art therapy angle, but it's also awareness raising because the exhibition and the demonstration of their work is something to to then be able to kind of set, share their message and, and give them a voice around to tell their story through the through the medium of art. Yeah, and I think also something about art and your film, which we when we watch the trailer, is that it feels so collaborative. It feels like so many people. Uh, you know want to lift each other up for one message you know I love that and Rise as well the pictures that I've seen of you guys what you're doing and survivors coming together it's a really beautiful you know collaborative let's give each other a helping hand you know well I mean you 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 are pretty incredible Amanda and you have such a way with words um and I think it's such a joy to speak to you because you're an astrophysicist who set up an amazing organization to you know bring you know, survivors together to to help them through something. You also, I'm just looking at your website now. I mean, Rise, you know, people can go on there and apply to amplify your campaign and your social movement. Um, you can make a donation to Rise to, to help everyday citizens with the tools to innovate d- democracy. Like what you're doing there is amazing. And then you've got Stop Asian Hate. And I think, you know, we, me and Jules always talk about activism and what it means and how we can sort of inspire people our friends our family anyone to pick up a pen or pick up their phone or whatever and do something to change the world and um and you've done you know so much and it's just great that we can learn from you and people can learn about rise and they can you know make changes in their in their their field society and you know pave the way for others not to not to be in in you know awful situations um in the future and you're a real inspiration in that there's no there's no one path to activism or there's no one path to to anything and and you've proven that you've been an astrophysicist you've worked in investment banking you've worked in government you've passed over 50 legislations in America and now you're going back to become an astrophysicist and you're going to travel to space i think that is an example to all that you really can do anything and take any turn in life um so thank you for sharing your story we've long long admired your work um one last one last question for you amanda is what's next for you what's next for rise and what are some of the projects you have coming up yeah i want to share three things to answer that question the first one is um the uh there's a fashion show that we're doing um and it's because I love fashion, but also because um, I had this light bulb moment. So during fashion week, the most commonly asked question is, I love your outfit, what were you wearing to that show? And I was like, oh wow, Um, I've been asked this question in my life before, after my rape, what were you wearing? And it's the same exact words, but um, in one context, it's wow. really empowering. It's the outfit that you chose to put on. And the other one, it's literally shaming you for the violence that happened to you. So we are taking that and flipping it on its head, removing the stigma, and we're having survivors and celebrity allies walk the runway um, in clothes for New York Fashion Week. It's going to be at the Museum of Modern Art, and it's going to be lots of fun. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's going to be lots of fun. Um, The second thing that I want to share with folks is 
um, the overview effect, which is when astronauts go into space for the first time, many of them experience, um, it's documented in psychiatric literature, the overview effect. It's essentially an existential crisis where astronauts see Earth um, and this pale blue dot, this orbital perspective, tells them that, you know, why are we fighting over such petty things? We should all be in this together. And so I think that's where I'll spend a lot of my time thinking, you know, how can we find peace with one another? Um, and the final thing that I'll share actually goes all the way back to the beginning, which is that the first time I actually spoke up about uh, my story to politicians in, you know, America, people were really rude. People really, they were saying things like, oh, well, like I sympathize with your rape, but this isn't going to get me votes so um, oh my I went home and cried. Yeah. yeah, it was it was really rude. Um, and I was just like, God, I just need somebody to tell me that they love me. And the next day, as a pathological optimist, I went back to the U.S. Senate. And in my car ride to the Senate, I met this man, the Uber driver, who was kind of intimidating, didn't really talk. But he saw that I was going to the Senate. So he asked me why I was going, and I told him. And this once intimidating man started crying. Like he literally just welled with tears. And he said, my daughter is also a rape survivor. And he said, um, what you went through, she also went through. And when he stopped the car, he said, can I shake your hand? Thank you so much for fighting for my daughter. Has anyone told you that they love you? I love you. Um, oh yeah. my God, I love him. Yes, I'll, I, I'll never forget him, you know? And um, I think that this story, at least for me, is it shows that we're living in a collective story, you know, um, that it's one of progress. Uh, so to answer your question, you know, my my next projects are just doing the things I love because I think joy is the most radical form of rebellion. Oh my God, that is so good. <laughs> Amanda, you've come up with some corkers today. I absolutely love it. I'm going to write those down in our diary. Um, <laughs> if... Um, if, if there was anything that you would share with listeners who, who, who want to sort of change the world and, and modern slavery, like we're trying to do at the Anti-Slavery Collective and you are, you are doing with, with helping survivors, what would you tell them apart from to tell them I love you and keep going? Yeah, I want people to know that the most powerful tool we have is our voice. You know, there's um, nothing as being too insignificant or too small. In fact, you know, there's so much light already within you that... No one is powerless when we come together and no one is invisible when we demand to be seen. So just go out there because you can do it. Thank you, yes. Amanda. I'm going to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and have fun while doing it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I feel a warm and fuzzy inside. Yay. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Amanda. This has been great and, and inspiring for our listeners, but inspiring for Eugenie and I too. So huge thanks for sharing today. Yeah, of course. For all our, for everybody listening today as well, you know, please look at Rise US. Um, and is it Rise US? Rise Now. RiseNow.us. That's the website. And, and follow Amanda and, and support all the things that she's doing to, to raise all these issues up, especially, um, you know, getting out there and, and doing it and your voice is, it matters thank you thanks Amanda see thanks, you soon Amanda. our huge thanks to Amanda for joining us 
You can find out more about her and the work of her charity, Rise, by looking through the show notes for today's episode. Make sure you join us next week where we'll be joined by actor Marisol Nichols. She's appeared in huge TV series like 24, my personal favourite, and Riverdale, and has used her profile and amazing acting skills to truly remarkable effect. It's a scarcely believable story, but one that should inspire optimism and hope in all of us. We'll see you then. Floodlight is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.